two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Muchos gracias, Rebecca, and welcome to the next episode of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. Uh, in a previous episode of our series on going around the world, we talked about movies from Mexico. And in today's episode, we're going even farther south or further south. I'm not sure which one is more appropriate, but to talk about movies set in South America. And both of them are dealing with political turmoil of the 1970s. The first one, made in 1972, but released in the U.S. in 1973, is State of Siege, directed and co-written by Costa Gavras. And the second one, made in 2009, but released in the U.S. in 2010, the Secret in Their Eyes, directed and co-written by Juan Jose Campanella. Now, The Secret in Their Eyes is actually from Argentina. State of Siege is French, which but is set in South America, and that might cause a little disconnect, but we'll talk about that. And as I said, both of these movies deal with the political turmoil of the time, specifically of the 1970s. And both movies are thrillers as well. And The Secret in Their Eyes in particular has quite a lot of twists and turns in it. So spoiler alert on that. (laughs) But first, Claude's going to... It's all spoilers. <laughs> yeah, but first, Claude is going to give us the plot description for State of Siege. I sure am. Well, this film takes place in an unnamed South American country in the film's present day of 1972. There are some hints to it being set in Uruguay and uh, and others which point to Chile, and I even thought for a moment we were in Brazil, but it doesn't really matter when you look at the broader story. We open with a long view of a street where some kind of police-slash-military operation is going on. Uh, Houses are being searched, people are being rounded up, stuff like that. And then, a police car pulls up on a seemingly abandoned car parked at the side of the road. They discover there's a dead man in the back seat. The man is Philip Michael Santori, who works for the United States Agency of International Development's Office of Public Safety. (sighs) During his funeral, we flash back about a week. We see a series of carjackings taking place, and apparently it's quite a common event around there because most of the people whose cars are being stolen, they know what's up and they cooperate with the carjackers. In a few cases, it's because they know who their captors are and they sympathize with the cause, if not necessarily their methods. In other cases, such as a taxi driver we see, it has happened so often that the driver is actually a little bit blasé about it. He knows the drill so well that he's explaining it to them and, in turn, to us. Yeah, yeah, I know. Wait a half hour and then report it stolen. And among these carjackings are a few genuine kidnappings. Two of them are minor government officials, one of whom manages to escape right away. And the third is Philip Michael Santori, who incidentally is played by Yves Montand. Centauri was accidentally shot during the operation, but it's essentially a flesh wound and he'll be okay in the long run. His captors are the Tupamoros, an insurgency group that acted as a band of Robin Hoods taking from the rich and giving to the poor. And their aim is not to harm Centauri, but they do interrogate him. And over the course of the week, we see the army pulling the country apart, looking for these hostages. And 
you know, the, the, and the Tupamoros and the Tupamoros have indicated their peaceful intent through their messages, but they're only willing to release these hostages if a number of people they consider to be political prisoners are set free. Now, Santori is spending most of his time with a single person who we know is named Hugo, but he doesn't know that. Hugo is played by uh, Jacques Weber. Santori realizes early on that most of the questions they're asking him, they already know the answers to, and they're just looking to him to confirm what they know. So he's actually pretty cooperative, although he maintains that he's there to help countries maintain traffic and trade. However, he also notes that as a conservative man, he knows that other conservative men are resistant to change, and the government isn't going to turn around with any amount of speed. We also learn through the week's conversation that Centauri has been training black operative activities such as kidnapping, torture, and assassinations throughout Latin America as a means of fighting communism. Now, because of all the military activity, the president of the country, who's played by Nemesio Artunes, Antunes, uh, is becoming quite unpopular, and he's actually on the verge of resigning when there's a breakthrough. No, they haven't found the hostages, but they did locate and capture several of the insurgents, some of whom are very important to the movement, and one of them is Hugo. This swings the power balance back to the government's favor, so the insurgents have to resort to desperate measures. They send a communique to the government threatening to kill Centauri if the prisoners aren't released within 24 hours. The president isn't budging, however, and what's more, Centauri knows... He's not going to change his mind. So he offers to help, uh, help Hugo's replacement, Este, who's played by Jean-Luc Bideau, to find a way to come out ahead, or at least not behind, in this situation. But he loses hope as he hears more of the details about what's been going on all week. And as the time starts to run out, Este confers with each of the leaders of the other Tupamoro cells to determine whether or not they should go through with killing Centauri. And by majority vote, they determine that this is, in fact, their next move. Now, we never see Centauri killed. Instead, we return to the funeral as his flag-draped casket is loaded onto an American military plane. And about the same time, another group of Americans is arriving, presumably Centauri's replacement, but we also see that the Tupamoro are already aware of him. And before I hand it back to Sean, let me also note a couple of great performances by Renato Salvatore as Captain Lopez and O.E. Haas as Carlos Ducas, a reporter who has a great way of getting to the heart of the situation through some very pointed questions. Okay, so let's talk a little about Costa Gavras. He was born in Greece, but was forced to emigrate to France because he was opposed to the right-wing government that was running Greece. And he started out making just um, regular thriller movies, one that I have not seen called uh, The Sleeping Car Murders, and then also a movie called Shock Troops, neither of which I've seen because... They're not available <laughs> as far as I've been able to find. But he eventually moved on to making political thrillers. And many, if not most, film critics would allege that the political thriller, which is what it sounds, you know, a genre movie thriller, except it has a very outspoken political point of view as opposed to implicit ones. But anyway, that the modern political thriller was born with three movies. Salvatore Giuliano 
directed by Francesco Rossi from Italy from 1962, I believe. And then The Battle of Algiers, directed by Gillo Ponti. Yes, 1962. Battle of Algiers, directed by Gillo Pontecorvo from 1966, although it was released in the U.S. in 1967. And Z, directed by Costa Gavras and released in 1969. Um all three of those movies were covering real people and real events. Salvatore G- Giuliano was talking about the mafia in Sicily, while Battle of Algiers is about the French losing to the Algerians and the Algerians' war for independence since French had colonized Algeria back in the day, and Algeria wanted their own independence. Z was about the assassination of the a president in an unnamed country that is Greece, in all but name, played by Yves Montan, and the, the attempts to cover it up until an investigator, played by Jean-Louis Trintignant, uncovered the truth, after which, unfortunately, there was a right-wing military coup that took place to suppress the truth, even after all the conspirators in the murder had been arrested. So, State of Siege is familiar territory for Costa Gavras. And originally, it was not going to be about um, the situation in South America, this film. He originally went to make, Costa Gavras said it was originally went to make a movie about the U.S. ambassador to Greece to, to be about how the U.S. may have looked the other way when the right-wing crew took place or maybe done more than that. But then he read the story about the person that Philip Michael Santore was based on, and I'm going to get to him in a moment, and decided to make the movie about that. And while it's not as strong as Z, I do think it's a very good movie on its own um, levels. And we'll get to why in a moment. But Claude, what did you think of the movie? Yeah, I enjoyed this film. I mean, there, as you mentioned early on, there there was a little bit of a disconnect because it is a French movie, and so you're you're kind of dealing with people speaking French regardless of their of their nationality, and and so you're it's 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 a little bit tough at first to kind of get a handle on on who's who within this thing and 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 what their various roles are and why are they speaking for you know like that kind of thing it it does take a couple of minutes to to get used to what's going on um but this is a really i i it's 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 a little bit of a tight thriller considering like how much of it is really you know just two people sitting in a room and talking to one another and you still feel this 
tension and you, and you, you don't get bored by, by those scenes. And you're kind of like wondering what goes, what comes next. And even though you know, if you've been paying attention, that one of the characters in that room is going to be dead by the end of the movie, you're still kind of rooting for him to make it out alive. You kind of forget that part a little bit. And so th- this is, this was really good from that, from that standpoint. And I actually did appreciate the fact that they had kind of made it a little bit hazy as far as, you know, where this thing was taking place. Um, especially in as much as a lot of this really came out for real, not much long after, I believe in Chile, right? Yes. Yes. This movie was shot in Chile Mm -hmm. because for obvious reasons, uh, Uruguay would not let them film there. Go figure. But, um, Salvatore Allende, the president of Chile at the time, agreed to let Costa Gavras and his crew film there. And of course, in a sad twist of fate, not longer, not long after this movie came out in the U.S., uh, Allende himself was the victim of a U.S.-backed military crew in Chile, and that's a whole nother story which Costa Gavras covered in another movie, uh, indirectly, by the way, in his first English-language movie from 1982, Missing, with Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek as, Mm. respectively, the father and wife of an American citizen who was killed by the people responsible for the coup, and whose death the U.S. government covered up and aided and abetted. And that's a good movie to check out as well. So let's talk a little about this um, real-life inspiration. Philip Michael Santori is based on a gentleman by the name of Dan Mitrione, who was born in Italy, emigrated to America with his parents, and that was, well, it doesn't say exactly when that was, but he served in World War II, and then he joined the public safety program of a government agency called the International Cooperation Administration, or ICA, which on the surface, was advertised itself as providing USAID and training to civilian police in countries around the world. But depending on who you talk to, they were either, you know, just helping the police out in each of these countries, or they were training these police in torture techniques. Although much, much later, several decades after Mitrioni's kidnapping and killing, one of the people involved in the Tupamaros, who are named in this movie, the only folks who are actually named here, I mean, not individually, but they are referred to by that name. But one of the Tupamaros um, would later reveal that the reason why Mitrioni was selected to be kidnapped was not because 
of the fact that he helped train the government and the police in torturing dissidents, but because he trained the police in riot control and because the police had um, facilitated the deaths of students who had protested against the torture techniques and U.S. imperialism in South America, which unfortunately was not restricted to Chile. Right, and it's probably not a coincidence that the agency he belonged to, the ICA, is an anagram of CIA. (laughs) That's also true. And they were working with um, another organization that, again, is mentioned in the movie, I forgot, United Fruit. Yeah. Yeah, a U.S. corporation that, you know, was doing business in South America because it's cheaper and exploiting the people working there as well and making sure that the government was friendly to them and no one else except anyone who had U.S. interests at heart as well. And and for what it's worth, remember, United Fruit Company also came up in uh, Godfather Part Two. As one, of yes. the, as one of the companies that was in the meeting with the president. Yes, in Cuba until yes. Fidel Castro Indeed. successfully rebelled against the Batista government. So there is a lot of real history that is being talked about here. Although, as with Z and as with Missing... Costa Gavras, as I said, does not name anyone specifically here. We never find out, as Claude mentioned in the synopsis, what country this is set in for sure. We have we do know that it's set in Latin America because of the title card that flashes up at the beginning of the movie, which translates to in Latin America, it's winter. But um, the point that of not naming the country, as Costa Gavras has explained in interviews, is so that the viewer knows that it could happen anywhere, not just in Uruguay. This could have been in any country under similar circumstances. Same with not naming Greece and Z, even though... Again, all the figures are pretty much tied to real... All the characters in the movie are pretty much tied to real figures at the time. And not naming Chile in Missing, even though there are... The people in Missing are real people being depicted, and they get, for the most part, their real names put in there. Uh, Sissy SpaceX character... Her name is different from the uh, real-life person that she's based on, but just about everyone else's name is real. But again, the country's name is not used in the movie, but you can pretty much guess that it's Chile in 1973. Now, that might... Um, provide a bit of disconnect as well, along with the fact that, yes, you have mostly French, although there are a couple German and Italian actors in here as well. And 
with the exception of a scene where uh, Santora's wife, who is American and who is played by... Um, be, uh, Evangeline Peterson. Evangeline Peterson. Okay, thank you. Um, there is a lecture given to her and other American women that is done in English, but everyone here speaks French. As I said, that's a little disconnect unless you remember that there have been quite a lot of American and British movies set in um, non-English countries, let's just put it that way, where they all speak in English. Mm -hmm. So this is not a new thing here. You know, this happened before, this happened after as well. Yeah, and, and, and I think the only thing that, that threw me there, and once you got used to it, it wasn't a big deal. But but the one thing that kind of lingered for me was was actually that reporter um, uh, played by O.E. Hase, because for some reason, I got it in my head that he was an American reporter, and it turned out he wasn't. He was he was local. No, I get that. I mean, it, as well as for the fact that, you know, we have a French actor playing an American, and all he speaks is French, although that can <laughs> be partly excused by the fact that that's what his captors are saying to him, and presumably, well presumably concerning American governments of the time. I'm mm -hmm. not so confident about today, but for American governments at the time, you know, they might have sent someone down there who at least spoke other languages, although maybe not remembering that we're only about 10 years off of the novel and movie, The Ugly American, which featured an uh, ambassador to an Asian country who had no knowledge of the language of the country that they were in, nor of any of the customs. So who knows? But anyway, again, that this, you might feel that disconnect, but the rest of the movie, I think, is so good that it doesn't you don't feel the disconnect for that long right you do you get pulled in pretty quickly and that's yeah. and that's not necessarily a bad thing and i think part of it also is the way that initial uh part of the film was set up with, with the various carjackings i mean you don't necessarily know what's going on but you're willing to kind of run with it for the time being to see what what's what this is really about and then when you get to the taxi driver specifically and you know the way he handles it and it's like yep yep been this done the drill and and clearly he's been hijacked so many times it's like yeah just tell me where you're going and we'll, we'll take care of it yes no and <clears throat> all of that if not quite as fast paced as z is done in a very fast paced manner now when z first came out uh pauline kale was a big champion of the movie and she compared it to the muckraking dramas that warner brothers did in the 1930s things like i am a fugitive from a chain gang and wild boys of the road and movies like that. But she also worried about the possibility that you've got a filmmaker using genre techniques to tell a political story. And what if someone was using those techniques 
to make a fascist movie. And indeed, you did get to see a little of that in the 1980s with things like Red Dawn and the Rambo movies and things like that. But because Costa Gavras and his co-screenwriter, who is uh, Franco Salinas, who co-wrote The Battle of Algiers, or actually he ju- he was the only, yes, he co-wrote The Battle of Algiers, uh, because they are taking the politics seriously and not although they're trying to do it in a way that people understand, they're not doing it in a simplistic manner. I think the fact that Costa Gavras is using genre techniques here doesn't make the movie um, any less in my eyes as far as its quality goes. You know, I know it did Costa Gavras was criticized by more left-wing critics in France for using popular techniques to tell a political story rather than do something like what Godard was doing at the time. But I feel that if you want more people to see your movie, and as long as I said you're treating the politics seriously and not doing it simplistically, I see no nothing wrong with the method that Costa Gavras uses here in this movie. Yeah, sure, especially considering we're we're in a drama. This isn't you know this isn't the kind of thing where let's say like a Mel Brooks film where they are you know making the political point by by mocking or by sending sending them up you know this is this is um this it makes sense to do this and and you know i i had no complaints from that respect for as far as this film was concerned right now the other thing that costa gavras does here that also gave some people on the left pause is even though the government is shown to be very oppressive in the way that it's lining up dis- uh, um, pulling in dissidents and arresting them and also the torture techniques they perform on them and the way that the police are suspending all civil liberties in order to find Santore and the other people that have been kidnapped. At the same time, the guerrillas are not shown, you know, in a saintly light. You know, Costa Gavras and Salinas are questioning, you know, is this the only way to do this? And you really get the sense of that in the conversations that um, Este is having with other cell members of the Supermeros, which, by the way, all take place on a bus. Yeah, that that was was a well-crafted scene. (laughs) Yeah, that Este is on and that other people get in and get off the bus to try and find out. You know, you can get a sense from how he's acting and what he's saying, you know, that this is a political problem. That's the issue here, that if it were up to him, he would not kill Santora, maybe. You know, that's sort of left ambiguous, but you can sort of get the 
feeling from that in the conversations that he's having and the fact that he clearly is not too enthusiastic about doing this. Right. And and the fact that he does it exactly the same way every time. He's got a rap down, like even for the first person. And it's kind of cool to see like, you know, he's just riding the bus and somebody comes and sits down next to him. He does the conversation. They get off. Somebody else gets on. And one of them turns out to be wearing a military uniform. So you're thinking... The jig is up. He's getting busted. Nope. The military guy sits down next to him and they have the same conversation. And in the meantime, you see him marking on the newspaper who said yes and who said no. And so there were a few people who did say, no, this isn't necessary. But ultimately, they did vote to assassinate. Right. And again, that's a way of humanizing them, but also at the same time questioning the fact, is this what we need to do? Um, You know, obviously, at the very end of the movie, when we see someone coming in to replace Centauri and we see that the surviving members of the Tupameros are there watching, suggesting that this may happen again, that the cycle is uh, continuing. Absolutely. Uh, The same way in uh, another political thriller made uh, three decades after this by another director of mostly popular entertainment, Munich, directed by Steven Spielberg, makes the same point, that they're trying to catch the people responsible for the 1970, the terrorist attack at the 1972 Olympics in Munich, but all they've done is perpetuate the cycle of violence. Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's a common thing. I mean, you got that through yeah. watching The Wire, too, where every single yes. bad guy character had a replacement before the series was done. Yes. Now, um, one of the techniques that Costa Gavras uses to make this an entertainment as opposed to just attract is his roving camera. That was quite even more evident in Z. We had a lot of swish pans and whip pans around. He doesn't do that as much here, but he does have a constantly moving camera uh, in scenes that are not just two people talking, although there is a bit of a moving camera on the bus scenes as well. His uh, cameraman or cinematographer in uh, Z was the great French cinematographer Raoul Coutard, and he wanted Coutard to shoot Z again, but he was unavailable. So instead, Pierre-William Glenn, who was probably best known for shooting Truffaut's Day for Night, was the cinematographer. And again, while not as flashy as Z, again, you've got this moving camera around. And that's one of the things that helps create the tension in the movie, along with the editor, who once again, as with Z, was Francois Benoit. And they do a good job of creating the tension. And although the music by Mikis Theodorakis, who also wrote the music for Z and was a well-known Greek composer who 
was under house arrest at the time, I believe, but who sent out music that Costa Gavras could use, that music also contributes to the tension of the movie. So, yeah, you got that. And and one of the things that you mentioned about, like, the quick moves with the camera also reminds me that um, the other thing you've got is that there are a lot of times when you cut very suddenly from one location to another in this film. So there are times when you're kind of leaving stuff in the middle of the action to go somewhere else. And then maybe you return to more or less the same place and maybe you don't. And if you don't, well, that's just the way it goes, but you're still pretty much able to catch up and get a good handle on what's going on. So it's handled very, very well. Right. Now let's talk about the performances here. Um, Ironically, at the time, or right before this movie was made, Yves Montan, along with his wife, Simone Signoret, was a communist. Although in his previous collaboration with Costa Gavras, The Confession, he played an actual communist who was imprisoned by the government of the country that he was living in for supposedly being a dissident. Again, a real-life person, but where the country was never named. And here, he's playing an American and someone who is fully supportive of the right-wing government that is in power and in the U.S. policies that are supporting that right-wing government. And Montand, although his personal life may not have been the best, um, let's just say that he apparently cheated on his wife and may have uh, sexually assaulted someone as well. But as an actor, he worked with quite a lot of the great directors uh, working in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and maybe beyond. He worked with Henri-Georges Clouseau on The Wages of Fear, one of the best French movies to come out. He worked with René on La Guerre est finie. He'd work with Godard on Tout va bien. Um, while his American filmography was not as noteworthy, he did work with John Frankenheimer on Grand Prix, which is not one of my favorite Frankenheimers, but it certainly looks good. And Montan is convincing as a Grand Prix racer. Mm-hmm. And he worked with Costa Gavras on five movies altogether. This was the last of them. And although his range might not seem like... Oh, and he worked with uh, Jean-Pierre Melville on Le Cirque Rouge, which we're going to be talking about in a couple episodes from now. And while his range may not have been large, for what he does, he does well. And he does project this world weariness, 
of understanding, you know, believing in his what his own government is doing, but understanding the other side sort of as well, or at least the impossible situation they've put themselves in, even if he thinks they're all nuts. Yeah, yeah, he know he definitely knows the score, and 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 he he's he's not just like world weary, which is a great way of framing it, but there's also just like this maybe underlying bit of cynicism going on too, as far as you know how this is going to go is like we you know we're doing this but it's not going to do any good but we're going to do it anyway and you can kind of feel that in some of the scenes that he does um not necessarily while he's while he's uh being captured but in some of those other flashback scenes where we see you know him uh in the training sessions and 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 some of those broader meetings that 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 we kind of flash back on Right, where he's the cynic as opposed to the true believers right. in the government. And by the way, the head of the police, Captain Lopez, is played by Renato Salvatore, an Italian actor who is also in Z. Um, he played one of the conspirators, although he was a low-level guy. He was the driver of the vehicle with the guy who delivers the killing blow to Yves Montan's character in that movie. And while he's playing a less lower class person here, Salvatore does a good job in his portrayal as well. And I'm not as familiar with Jacques Weber, uh, the guy who plays Hugo. I do know that he was in the 1990 version of Cyrano de Bergerac that had uh, Gerard Depardieu in the title role. Maybe that's, he looked familiar. Maybe that's where I remembered him from. Yeah. Um, But he also, I know what, oh, he played de Guiche, the guy who wants Roxanne, but is married to someone else Mm -hmm. and who Cyrano is opposed to. Um, the guy who takes over for Hugo when Hugo gets kidnapped is played by Jean-Luc Bideau, uh, Este. And I know him from the a movie that I've mentioned in passing, Jonah, who will be 25 in the year 2000. He's one of the ensemble cast in that. And he also does a good job. And the other one I want to mention is O.E. Hase, uh, the guy who plays Carlos Ducas, uh, one of the main reporters. Now, as opposed to Z, where it was just one reporter who was basically helping stirring up things so that the truth would come out, and that one reporter was played by a guy who was one of the producers of this movie, Jacques Parin. Um, basically, Ducasse is leading a whole group of reporters who are questioning the government's version of events. So they're almost like a counterpoint chorus to, or counterpoint Greek chorus yeah. to what's going on here. And Costa Gavras uses them very effectively in that respect. Yeah, more often than not, you see them interacting with some government officials, but there are also a couple of scenes where they're just talking among themselves. And, you know, they, they, 
as we usually see reporters in, in films is like, yeah, they kind of know what's up, but they don't necessarily have the ability to say exactly what's going on because of what they're being fed. So now before we wrap this up, the one last thing I want to mention is while Costa Gavras is mostly known for is known for thrillers and finding the drama in them as well as the suspense in them. He's not above a little humor. And we get that in the scene where the loudspeakers have uh, something going at them that isn't official events, let's just put it that way. And that's kind of darkly funny. Yeah. And... In a way, all the scenes on the bus are a little darkly funny as well. And the fact that, you know, this is what they're reduced to, that they have to have all these meetings on the bus to find out what they're going to do about their problem. So he does is able to insert a little humor in there as well. Yeah, I mean, I didn't find that particularly funny as such. I mean, that seemed like just the necessary thing for them to do at this point. You know, they're, they're, one of their biggest uh, hideouts had been discovered. Actually, a couple of them had been. And, um, you know, so they, they recognize, like, we can't all meet in one place. We're just going to have to do this on the go now. Now I know, but it is a little dark, darkly humorous as well. And then also the cab driver that he provides yeah. a little dark humor as well. And the one last thing I wanted to mention is the fact that maybe for obvious reasons, but it still stunk anyway. <laughs> this movie was supposed to premiere at the Kennedy Center. But the Nixon administration, again, for obvious reasons, uh, put the kibosh on that. So what ended up happening is a Washington, D.C. television station showed the movie uncut on TV before it eventually got released to theaters. And this movie, although it took a long time for it to officially come out on home media, it was available on video, but it was a dubbed version, at least in the U.S. Um, it was one of those movies that was well-known before it finally came out on the Criterion DVD, uh, there was a movie made in 2002-2003 directed by John Malkovich called The Dancer Upstairs, which is also about political turmoil in South America. And we see that one of the people involved in that turmoil has a VHS copy of State of Siege. And Steven Soderbergh, um, when he was doing commentary on his movie Traffic, admitted that a scene where the camera pans from one side of the border um, crossing from U.S. to Mexico to the other side was stolen from a similar scene in a State of Siege. So this movie was influential even before it became widely available. Okay, so Claude, do you have anything else you want to mention about State of Siege before we wrap this up? One of the things I really dig about this film is the title, believe it or not, because 
not only is it like kind of a pun, it's a bilingual pun. It works in both French and English. So when you say state of siege, it translates exactly the same way in, in English, l'état de siège. And, and so you've got, you know, these, these characters and, and, you know, not just the, 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 um, the hostages, Centaurian company, but also the, the, um, the insurgents who also are basically, they are in a state of lockdown and they are maintaining a siege mentality. But at the same time, you've got all this political information, uh, not information, activity going on. And so the state itself, whatever state that happens to be, because we don't know, is in a state of siege. So I just thought that that was something really good. And I just like to acknowledge a nice bilingual pun. And then I do have one other thing, but I'm going to save that for part two, because I think it's something that ties both films together very nicely. All right. So uh, immediately following this portion, in part two, we're going to be talking about the secret in their eyes. That's coming up right away in your podcast feed, so stick around. In South America, 